Ladies and gentlemen, good evening and welcome to the third of our seminars examining the state of Palestine. And it's my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Ambassador Alon Liel. Alon Liel is a product of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, where he took his bachelor's, his master's, and his doctorate, studying economics and international relations. By the time he completed his doctorate, he had emerged as one of Israel's experts on Turkey, which saw him in his capacity as a member of the diplomatic corps of Israel, uh, serving in, uh, in Turkey for a, a couple of years in the 1980s as chargé d'affaires. In a long and distinguished career with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, he served as a ministry spokesman, served on the delegation that was uh, negotiating uh, with Egypt in the Taba talks, served as ambassador to South Africa, before then moving into the really serious levels of administration in the civil service as Director General first of the Ministry of Economy and Planning, and then as the Director General of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Yet it arguably is since his time in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs that the voice of Alon Liel has become most influential, and never more so than in the past 12 months or so, when he has been a tireless spokesman on behalf of the recognition of Palestine, less, it would seem, out of the concern for the justice of the Palestinian cause than out of a conviction that in recognizing Palestine and by implementing a two-state solution, the, Israel, the interests of Israel will best be served. In the process, he has emerged as one of the most distinctive voices speaking against the dominant tendency of the Israeli government today. As we explore the debates that surround the recognition of statehood in Palestine, we could think of no one who would be more iconoclastic to bring to the Oxford audience to address the subject than Alon Liel. I would like to ask you all to join me in giving him a very warm welcome to the Middle East Center Seminar. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Third time for me in Oxford. First visit was three years ago and I keep coming every year. Wonderful city, wonderful people. And I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to meet you and tell you our story, give you our analysis. It's not only mine, it's a group of people, Israelis, not too many of us who are very much involved and devote a big part of the time to this effort. So uh, what I'll try to do, I'll try to give you a certain background as, as I see it at the moment about the, the situation of the different players involved. Very brief, Israel, Palestine, Europe, and the United States some words about the interaction among them, and then try to build a certain prescription on the, on the theoretic level, and as a last stage, move to what we are doing as, as a result of this analysis, what I'll call the project, the project that we are involved in in the last five months. If I start with a picture, and take it player by player, uh, obviously not covering all the aspects, but try to touch on the relevant aspects to, to the uh, conflict, to the negotiation, to lack of negotiations. And we'll start with Israel, the country I'm coming from, that uh, in the last decade became a very strong country, 
militarily, technologically, economically. But still, although we are very strong, very fearful group of people being frightened on a daily basis by Prime Minister who himself is frightened or at least pretends to be frightened. And as a result of the recent developments made us so powerful in the region and even beyond, looking down on the, on the Palestinians, ignoring them, not only as individuals, definitely ignoring the narrative. And this, these are, these are the, the, the main developments of the last few years as a result of this, including what's going on in the region, the Israeli public has shifted politically further to the right. And this is the Israeli player. When we take the Palestinian player, very weak Palestine, economically, no army, torn apart politically between the Hamas and, and the Fatah, and very disillusioned, realizing fully the huge gap between the sides, most of the Palestinians you talk to today say this Israeli giant will will never give us what we dream about, what we deserve. So why bother? And and a lot of them in in the in a mood that says let's let's move along with the circumstances. Let's try upgrade a little bit our standard of living. And on top of it, many of them shifting gradually, especially the young people, from this two-state idea and free Palestine, even to the idea of one state, uh, that, by the way, becomes more popular in Israel too, mostly in the right wing, but also on the left. If I take Europe, if I take Europe as the, the player that we are trying to engage in this, in this conflict, Having a crisis, an economic crisis, ongoing rolling economic crisis with some casualties to take care of, especially the Greek patients, and being quite frightened by this wave of Islamic terror, radical Islamic terrorism. I think we just saw over a month ago what happened in Paris. I think Europe was frightened even before, but after Paris, it's, it's, it is a shockwave all over Europe, and now another few events in the Copenhagen continent that is, is uh, uh, quite frightened. And uh, when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, seeing the Americans in charge of this conflict, uh, uh, this is the American responsibility. Uh, I remember about a year and a half ago, I met in uh, Israel, in Tel Aviv, all the deputy uh, chief of missions of the 28, I think then there were still 27 EU countries. They were all sitting around, and I asked them, where is Europe? Where is Europe? Please do something. You see, the Americans are... And they said, we? We are the cheerleaders of the Americans when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So, so Europe, Europe. This this is a kind of a, a picture on Europe, and and we can see some players that started 
playing a more independent role like Sweden with the recognition of Palestine as a government, and recently France, and we'll be talking about an element in Europe that we, you can trace is the very, very big difference between the governments and the public, but we will come to it when we'll speak about the interaction between the players. United States, United States. You look at the United States, and I'm speaking on, on the Middle Eastern angle now, having suffered some Middle Eastern traumas, very critical of what Israel is doing with settlements. I would even say when it comes to our prime minister, they cannot hide the dislike and, and the, they really hate, hate this guy. But when it comes to real deeds, to, to something that, that the Israeli public would feel, they fade away. They fade away. They would criticize the settlements. They would sometimes criticize uh, the behavior of the prime minister and some of the ministers. But when it comes to doing something, to do something that the Israeli public might feel and might cause some pain, you have a paralyzed superpower, completely paralyzed. We can analyze it from different dimensions. Uh, some of it is the big support for Israel among the Republicans in, very, in Christian circles, the Jewish lobby, but there is no ability to, to put real pressure on Israel on behalf of uh, the United States. We are, when I'm trying to look at the interaction between these four players, and of course you can mention many other issues on each one of the players, but these are the ones that I found as the more relevant. When you start looking at the interaction, First, start, let's start with the Israeli-Palestinian interaction. I think the thing that is uh, profoundly lacking is some mutual esteem. When, when we were studying the Irish conflict, we, we started hearing a, a term that helped Ireland uh, solve, uh, at least for the moment, solve its conflict, and this was parity of esteem. When we first heard it a few years ago over there in the Middle East, we, we didn't really grasp what parity of esteem is. And the more we looked into it, we found that this is what is lacking in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. When you have Israel here, somewhere here, and the Palestinians somewhere here, an attitude has developed in Israel of why should we even relate to them? Who are they? Where are their achievements? Look at our achievements. But when you look closer and deeper, and you sometimes speak about it with the Palestinians, you, can, you see that they take this gap as a fact uh, of life, and in a way inject it into their calculations and reach the conclusion that with such a gap, what chance do we stand? Well, well, how can we close 
such a, a gap. The most worrying thing about this gap is that Israel developed a balance of power attitude. This, we are here, you are there, this is the balance of power. Like, let's take a photo and decide that this is the balance of power and write down an agreement that is reflecting this balance of power. And obviously, first of all, because the gap is growing, the Israeli demands are growing, and I mean the gap between the sides, and as a result, the gap in the positions of the sides is growing. So we, we reach a situation, especially in the last year since the Kerry efforts uh, collapsed, that you have a feeling that the gap reached a magnitude that is really unbridgeable. I found yesterday in an article that uh, Tony Blair wrote two, three days ago after he visited Gaza, wonderful sentence that I think reflects this picture. He said, Tony Blair with a nice English and, you know, with a, with a flavor, with a British flavor, he said, the problem is not, as is often thought, locking negotiators in a room long enough to make an agreement. At present, you could lock them in such a room for eternity, and peace would still not come. Tony Blair, he is the professional optimist. He is the guy who's running, running, arranging, water, deep, and he is 100% correct. Lock them for eternity. There'll be no agreement. I wouldn't say it 15 years ago. I'll hesitate. I would hesitate saying it seven years ago when we again negotiated in 2008. But I have no doubt that this is the situation I want. I, I even would say you cannot even bring them into the same room in the foreseeable future. But let's say we put them into. They won't even touch on the core issues, not on borders, not on Jerusalem, not on settlements, not on refugees. It's tragic, and it happened so fast. Fifteen years is no time in historic. Fifteen years ago, we could still do it. Eight years ago, maybe. Now, it looks simply impossible. Look. Everything I say is my assumption. Now Blair supports me, so, but of course everything you can argue with, but this is the feeling many of us over there are having. I want still to, to speak on the interaction between the players and dig a little bit deeper Europe. Because Israel is so strong, we're a small country, eight million people, but because we are so strong militarily, because we, we are so innovating in military technologies, homeland security technologies, intelligence with the information, the Mossad is having on all kind of ISIS terrorists here and there, European governments are very reluctant to clash with Israel bilaterally. They have the feeling that when they clash with Israel bilaterally, Israel has the ability as a government, with the Jewish community sometimes in the countries, with world jewelry and so on, to cause them damage. Also, the level of trade between Israel and individual European countries, and definitely with the EU as a whole, is such 
that if you today clash with Israel directly and Israel is channeling the import that it has from Italy to other countries or from France to other countries, there is a feeling among the leaders in Europe that this can affect the economy in such a sensitive period of time and definitely, definitely when it comes to intelligence facing these terror problems and so on. After serving 31 years in the Israeli government, I can somehow understand it because it's not a myth. Israel is really powerful on these issues that are worrying Europe. And governments, prime ministers, foreign ministers, they work by interests. They, were, they see the calculations, they see the figures, they see every morning the threats, they see the information that Israel is giving, they see how much they are selling in Israel and so on. And governments are working by interests. When it comes to the public, it's a different ballgame. Among the public, in many countries, or Europe as a whole, support for Palestine is growing. Not only because there is this instinct to support the underdog, but because the Palestinian cause is just, and on a moral basis, more and more Europeans support the Palestinian cause and are becoming more and more critical about the occupation. Because the occupation is 47 years old. Now, we could, we could I was a diplomat for so many years. I, I was part of this Israeli machine. One of the arguments we always used about occupation is that it's temporary. Even according to international law, if you are an occupier and you are there on a temporary basis and you will leave soon, there are things you can do and things you cannot do. But if you are there forever, if it's not temporary, it's a different ballgame. And people start thinking that this is there to stay because it's not only the time, it's also the number of the settlers that, that is growing. And not only the, the figure of the settlers, it's the roots. People are there, Israelis are there 47 years. So today you have a child, five years old, four years old. He's there, you can maybe blame his grandparents. Even his grandparents, I don't know, because the Israeli government sent them there. But what does this child, why, why does this child have to leave his house because of, what, of the wrongdoings of the grandparents? Doesn't he have rights of his own? It's, it's not being so, so complicated to, to evacuate the Israelis, also because of the magnitude, the scope, the, 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 the numbers, and because they, the, of the roots they have in the, in the place. I'll give you a, just a tiny little example. I think the day before yesterday, a girl, four years old, died. She, she was uh, injured, heavy, seriously injured, two years ago by Palestinians throwing stones at the car of her parents. And for two years, the Israeli public is, is following her struggle, and she died. 
her parents insisted to bury her in this isolated settlement in the territories. Now, the government was against it because there is no cemetery there. You cannot just dig a hole, and, you know, according to Jewish. But they insisted, and they dig a hole there. Thousands of people came to the funeral. Just to remove this grave is, is so difficult politically. But, and you have, I, I don't have to say hundreds, I think already hundreds of, of, so it is so difficult. And if you look at the picture, at this uh, picture of Israel and Palestine and the ability to change the circumstances on the ground, less and less Israelis believe that it's possible and less and less uh, Palestinians believe that it's possible. And Europe is looking at it accumulating the anger, increasing the support for the Palestinians and the criticism on Israel. When I look at the United States, the United States obviously is fiercely, constantly against the settlements, but except of taking photos here and there and giving reports, doing nothing serious, but on the other hand, has developed an attitude that it is against one-sided moves by the sides. So if the Palestinians go to the UN or to any legal, international legal institution, the United States is against. But the settlements are also one-sided. So Israel doesn't give a damn. They would say, don't settle because it's one-sided, and Israel goes on. And they come to Abu Mazen and they say, don't submit uh, your request to international organization or the UN because it's one-sided. He usually obeys because he doesn't want to confront the Americans. But this American policy of no one-sided moves has exhausted itself. Both sides ignore, ignore the United States, recently also the Palestinians. So just to sum up this interaction thing, no talks even not in the pipeline, and even not in the planning, in the thinking. Both sides kind of gave up on it. Europe, very furious public, governments cooperating with Israel, heads of state visiting, Israeli politicians visiting, the United States sitting there in Washington saying, no one-sided, no one-sided, and everybody does one-sided recently. This is the, the picture of the interaction. Okay, I come to what could be done and what should be done, and let me still start on the theoretic level. Assuming, I'm correct, that we sides cannot, even, even if the Israeli elections will surprise us and we'll have a moderate right-wing government or a center right-wing and not a radical right-wing government, I think several things have to be done on the theoretic levels. First of all, the, somebody has to come up, stand up, and tell the Israeli public, look, we know you're strong. We know Palestinians are weak. We know the realities of the ground. But we will not forget about it. We will not let you go with it, just like that. And not only say we're following 
to do something that will remind the Israelis, will explain the Israelis uh, that, that the public still opens an eye uh, and is, is determined uh, to change these uh, circumstances. On the other hand, we have to, to change the mood among the Palestinians. The fact that they are so disillusioned also has to change. They also have need a revival of their hopes to have a, a state. And uh, a sig the signal that should be sent to Israel saying, we will not let you go with it, uh, should also be sent to the Palestinians telling them, look, we are behind you, we'll support you, we'll not forget about it. And so we have to, to send such a signal of hope to the Palestinians if we want to it. The tendencies, the, the momentum of more support on both sides for a one-state solution, meaning the Palestinians not demanding the land, demanding their rights, their citizenship, will gain more and more support on both sides. I don't know if many of you here know, but about three months ago, we, the Israeli parliament uh, elected a new president to replace uh, Shimon Peres. Shimon Peres was Mr. Two States. And the parliament elected Mr. One State, the most prominent politician we had was openly supporting a one state solution. This is the new president of, of Israel. So we, we have to try and and reverse uh, this momentum. Regarding Europe, we have to try and find a goal for Europe that will not be too ambitious, that will not frustrate Europe. If we say that talks cannot achieve anything, we should push Europe to mediate. We should try, and, and on the other end, if we say that the European governments cannot confront Israel and the EU cannot confront, we should not, there is no point to push for sanctions. There will be no sanctions, maybe on the settlements, but not on, on Israel. We should kind of tailor, make a project goal for Europe that is achievable and can still send such a, a message. And we should send a signal to Washington. You guys, you guys created a vacuum that somebody can jump into. And if you will not seriously start tackling the issue, somebody will replace you. We thought it's Europe, but here I'm coming to what I, the story I want to tell you about, what I call the project. About my, my second visit to Oxford was about, I think it was four, four and a half months ago. It was, few days, I think, or a week after a new Swedish prime minister was elected. And he immediately, on his first speech in parliament, he announced that Sweden will recognize Palestine. We, our group of friends, it was a fresh air. I mean, a European, West European government is announcing they will recognize Palestine. On the other hand, it was too good to be true. 
It was too good to be true because we know, we know how difficult it is for a mid-sized European country to clash with Israel, especially when they stand alone. So, but I mean, I'm visiting Oxford, having this Swedish statement hanging. They didn't recognize, they just announced they will recognize. And I'm coming to uh, Oxford, just there was a conference, Israeli-Palestinian Judean conference, on the morning of the conference I go for breakfast with Professor Avi Schlein sitting here. And Avi is telling me that the British Parliament is going to vote on the issue of recognition of Palestine. I never heard about it, although, you know, we monitor, we try to monitor things from Israel with a microscope. Never heard about it. <coughs> I asked him, Avi, you can, Avi can uh, tell you if it's good. Are you sure? Are you sure there will be a vote? He said, I'm sure, yeah. And even more, he told me that uh, some Jewish liberals in the community supported And I told him, Avi, look, based on, on what we were breaking our heads in Israel to find a role for your, I said, I think that although it's in 10 days, I can go back to Israel and arrange a letter of 50 Israeli intellectuals, I said maybe 100, to call upon the British Parliament to do it. And I said, it's critical. Why? Especially because of Sweden. We had a feeling that Sweden will not do it without support. And if you're the British Parliament, this is a classic thing to support the Swedes. And, uh, and my thinking was, let's save this, let's, let's have the, Swedes, the Swedish government implementing. Avi said, let's think about it, we'll think about it. He, 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 he liked the idea. But, but then the conference started, and I came with this background from, from Avi. It was in one of the smallest colleges here in Oxford. The president of the college was a lord from the Liberal Democrats, Lord John Alderdice. I came to the Lord and I said, is it true the parliament is going to vote? He said, yeah, I heard about it, I'll check. And I told him in front of everybody, I told him, look, this is an historic vote. If the British parliament will call upon the government to <laughs> recognize Palestine, first of all, the Swedes will do it as a government and then it will go on rolling from one parliament to the other. And I told him what I told Avi. If a letter from 50 Israelis from, uh, can help, I can convince some of the big names, the intellectuals, authors, actors, uh, to, to send you a letter. It took a week. And the Lord, the Lord is coming to me in an email. I, I was in Montenegro. Uh, I don't know if anyone visited ever Montenegro. I was on a mountain, 2,000, over 2,000 meters, and I have a, an email from Lord Alderdice. He said, please, urgently, we need your letter. We need, it doesn't look as if we can make it in the British Parliament, but it's getting close because the Liberal Democrats decided to vote in favor. Still long way to go. Government is against their... Conservatives are again, but a letter can help. I'm on the mountain on the top of the mountain. 
but technology is working even on the top of the mountain. <laughs> I sent an email to some friends. It was not only on the top of the mountain, it was Friday late afternoon and Shabbat. Some of the friends keep Shabbat there. And I told them, please see if we can send a letter to the British government signed by a group of friends calling them to recognize Palestine. Sunday, 10 o'clock in the morning, which was the deadline that the Lord gave us, uh, not the Lord, the, the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> we had 363 signatures. We sent it to, to Lord Alderdice. He, he, he said, wonderful, wonderful immediately helped us to send it to all the British parliamentarians, and the vote was about 30 hours later. An hour before the vote, the Lord Alderdice sends me an email, we might do it, not should at all, we might do it. I'm back in Jerusalem, my home, I try to follow, and 11 o'clock at night, the news 274 to 12 in favor of recognition of Palestine. We were shocked. The Lord said, maybe we'll do it. And then we started analyzing what happened. And, and the Lord Alder has told me, we, this letter is very powerful because many, many of our supporters said, look, it's not a consensus against it in Israel. The, very prominent Israelis that are in favor of it. And the ultimate proof was that in the debate itself, five hours, three of the parliamentarians read the letter. All the rest was very easy. For three and a half months, it was rolling from one parliament to the other. The Spanish, the French, the lower house, the upper house, the Irish, lower, upper, Portugal, uh, Luxembourg, you, eight parliaments all together, including the European Parliament, each one of them got the letter, and of course we were having more signatures all the time. We stopped on the 1,000, and we kept sending this letter to the Parliament. Among the 1,000, we had about 20 names known, well known in Europe, like the big authors, Amos Oz, David Grossman, uh, Albert Joshua, uh, singer Achinoam Nini, and ex-ministers, about five ex-ministers. We didn't approach active politicians, uh, ex-ministers, ex-parliamentarians, and ex-diplomats. Friends in the ministry that left two years ago, one year ago, said, we are with you. Former ambassadors to France and to South Africa, some of the names you might know. And then the middle of, of December is coming. Not all of it is a happy story. <laughs> middle of December is coming. I was very worried about this uh, Christmas, Sylvester pause because the, the momentum was, it was really rolling from one parliament to the other. And with every vote, we got additional uh, strength in the approaching the next one. Seventh of January, I think it was, was the attack, the, the two terrible attacks in, in France, the terror attacks. 
Europe is a different Europe after these attacks. Different Europe. A week before, we had the first setback. We were not involved in it. But the Palestinians submitted the request to the Security Council to put a time limit on the occupation, and they failed. So after eight consecutive votes in Europe, in which we were winning one after the other, they had a setback in, in the Security Council. Then we had these events in France. And when we came back to it, end of January, I went to Rome. The Italian parliament was the next. The atmosphere was entirely different, entirely different. So many questions. If we do it, will want it strengthen Islamic fundamentalism? What about the Hamas? Questions that a month ago we didn't have in any of these eight parliaments started popping up. And, and I came, I, I addressed with a very prominent Palestinian, Nabil Shahat, about 100 people in the Italian parliament. And, and I saw the, the hesitations, and they postponed the vote. And they postponed it since twice already. And the momentum has, has slowed down. Some of it, a little bit, is because of the Israeli elections. More people say, let's wait, see what you will decide. Maybe you will decide that people like you will uh, rule Israel, so why do we have to bother them? But I think this was not the, the key factor. The, the key factor was the growing fears in Europe. And this attitude of, and also this wave of terror strengthened the Israeli embassies in their lobbying against it. They say, whom are you going to give prize? You know, half of the Palestinians are Hamas, Hamas, it's ISIS. Very easy, it was very easy to, to throw these uh, arguments. I want to, to reach the present. Although we had some meaningful achievements, by the way, very quietly, the Belgian parliament also confirmed about 10 days ago, almost in a secret. There's also very big difference from the others. We immediately announced it, and media dealt with it. We have a pause. If this will end with the Swedish government recognizing Palestine and nine parliaments, we did nothing. If this stops here, we did nothing. This will evaporate, and we have to find a way to renew this momentum. We have to. We have to. And we have to gather the energies, all the energies, around Europe. The Palestinians who, who themselves are exhausted and, and disillusioned. The Israeli left. We, the, the, the people who believe that you said we are doing it for our, ourselves, for our country, it's true. We do it also for the Palestinians, but first of all, for ourselves. We believe that if this will not happen, Israel will not be a democratic country anymore. I don't want to live in a non-democratic country. So it's true that maybe 10% of the Israelis think like us, the Jews in Israel. Maybe 15% or But we are there. So it's the Palestinians, and it's the Israeli left, and it's the liberals in Europe, all over Europe, and even the liberals in the Jewish communities in Europe. And it's 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 the parties, all the parties that were involved in this campaign. Usually it's the Greens 
and where you have communists, it's, it's the communists, and it's the social democrats, and in, in every parliament without this devoted group, it wouldn't happen. So I think that at this stage, my gut feeling is that if we will not organize an all-European event somewhere in Europe in which we'll bring these forces together to a conference of, under the call of recognizing Palestine, in which we'll bring all these forces that some of them could be marginal in this Jewish community or in another Jewish community or in this political map in a certain country. And we ourselves are not big players in Israel, but together these, uh, all these groups together uh, have a European call. And I think this can maybe revive the momentum, inject new, new energies into this uh, project. I'm telling you this story in details because it's really an Oxford project. It is an Oxford project. It started here in Oxford without Avi telling me and the Lord, this Lord, and, and, uh, and this British idea and this momentum, it wouldn't start warning. And we, we have to do Oxford phase two. You, uh, in Oxford, you know, you're a university, but uh, you are a very minded university. And England is a key country. If England would vote in December with the French together in favor of the Jordanian resolution, we, we wouldn't have to work hard on it. The Security Council would allow it. Maybe even the Americans would veto. But once you have the nine, and you have the nine rolling, how many times can the Americans veto? And I'm not sure at all that now, after Netanyahu embarrassed Obama with this Congress, they will veto it. So every country is critical. Britain is critical here. Spain is a critical country because they are a member of the Security Council. And Sweden, I'm speaking to the Swedish diplomats, and I'm telling them, Look, you did a wonderful thing. A very, by the way, Israel pulled the ambassador from Stockholm for a while. Now we sent him back. But they, they have so much fire on them. You know, uh, just an anecdote. Did you hear about our foreign minister? I hope soon the outgoing foreign minister, Lieberman. When the Swedes recognized Palestine, he made an official statement, the Minister of Foreign Affairs of the State of Israel. Don't forget I was the Director General of this <laughs> ministry. He made a statement that the Swedes, they can construct IKEA furnitures but they cannot understand complex situations like we have in the Middle East. <laughs> Very diplomatic. The Swedish lady foreign minister, she answered him that if he will ever try to construct IKEA furniture, he will see that he needs a partner. Imagine how much fire did they take doing it. And I told them, it's, it's you know, here I say it's Oxford, but there to them I say it's a Swedish, the Swedish. Take your diplomacy with the Palestinian diplomacy and work on it all over Europe. It's yours, it's your baby, and it's our hope. That's, the, that's almost the only thing we can do now. 
we cannot aim at something that is more ambitious than this at this given moment. Maybe in a year, maybe in two. But at the moment, let's, let's finish this work of a, a European consensus recognizing Palestine. If we'll have another 10 parliaments and we'll have it rolling among the government, and I know that the Irish government is seriously considering it, but it has to come with a push. It, it, it doesn't happen without, without working on it. So, so I want to send this message here to you. And every, and every such room in Europe that is ready to discuss this topic, you have other problems, we know, but that is ready to devote the time and the energy is very important. It's really touch and go if we continue it. And I think, and I think such a, a push of anyone involved towards such a gathering, and of course also to continue with lobbying in the parliaments that are still ready to consider it. Unfortunately, I see it's fading away. We had Finland discussing it with Swiss, the Swiss parliament discussing it with Slovenia. It's gone. It's, it's very quiet, so we have to revive it. I would like to pause here for questions, so please go ahead. I'll stop here. Okay.